The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, April 4th, the Hansy Joe edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. God, I'm laughing at Hansy Joe. It's so <laughs> yucky to say. Okay, Hansy Joe. Uh, in the New York studios, we have June Thomas, senior managing producer of the Slate Podcast Network. Hey, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hello, Hannah. I will say thank you to all the listeners who sent me business book ideas. You guys are in with the business books. I got so many good <laughs> ideas. I am very, very grateful. Hannah, what, was, what are a few of the most interesting sounding ones? Uh, the best one I got was The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, mm-hmm. which I had had around because I've been collecting them. But since a few people sent me on Twitter and by email that name, I looked into it. It's so well written. It's such a pleasure to read. It has such you know perfectly timed anecdotes. It has such interesting advice. And it's exactly the topic that I'm trying to figure out. Uh, it has a really great story of this, basically this, this uh, study where they hire an asshole to disrupt culture and see how different organizations respond to it. And I kind of want to interview the guy whose job it is to be the (laughs) asshole. You know, like he's supposed to, he sort of gets himself hired for these studies at places and then is just like a jerk in all kinds of ways, like leans over and whispers to people or like makes people feel excluded. He's like, um, he's just like a nice disruptor, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's just like a really funny job. Dream job, a dream job. (laughs) But it's hard to turn that off at the end of the day. Yeah, Yeah, like how do you, what do you even like pitch yourself as? Anyway, (laughs) uh, it's a pretty great experiment. I just called the guy who did it because I was just interested in like, how'd you find the asshole? (laughs) Anyway, it's a very good book. All right, well, let's get going. Our topics first. Of course, of course, we're going to discuss Joe Biden's handsy, affectionate style. Um, I'm, I'm really appreciating the way, you know, different TV stations describe him. Like, they don't quite say Joe Biden accused of sexual harassment. They'll say, like, he's affect- his affectionate style, like the words people are trying to come up with to describe it. But anyway, we'll get there. Second, we're going to talk to Lori Gottlieb, who is the author of the new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, an inside, inside look at the life of a therapist who is herself in therapy. And finally, we are going to slide in a conversation with Christina Cotarucci, the Other Waves host, and Mark Harris about Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg is exploring a presidential run. He is much admired. He's also Gay and Christina and Mark are going to talk about what role does his sexuality play in his campaign. Finally, our Slate Plus segment, June, queued up. What are we going to talk about? We are going to ask, is it sexist that NASA had to cancel the first all-female spacewalk because of wardrobe reasons? <laughs> Here's a sneak peek or whatever you say, a sneak listen from that segment. They had these all these women in the class that they were training, but they didn't provide enough suits for them to wear yeah i feel like the the female astronaut is such a trope of feminism like such an 80 like sally ride like has been a thing forever and ever you know it's like women in space has been just this like girl power thing and yet the whole system actually the whole time was literally just not made for them And if you would like to hear the whole thing, why not join Slate Plus? It's Slate's membership program. You can support our journalism, get ad-free podcasts, also attend special events and get discounts on live events. You can join by going to slate.com slash thewavesplus. 
All right. Let's talk about Joe Biden. Last week, Biden was accused by former Nevada legislator Lucy Flores of kissing and touching her. The way she put it was that he leaned in, inhaled her hair, and she was mortified. Can I just read the quote, she says? Because I don't know. It just gives you a good internal dialogue. I didn't wash my hair today, and the vice president of the United States is smelling it. And also, what in the actual fuck was the (laughs) vice president of the United States smelling my hair? For some reason, that stuck out with me a lot. Anyhow, since then, uh, a lot of photos have surfaced. It's it's a ubiquitous style he has. He is often leaning into the hair of women and, and kissing them or just kind of leaning in close. Uh, th- this comes after a speech he gave saying he regrets his role in the Anita Hill hearings. And since then, I feel like we have watched the 76-year-old sort of fumble, try and defend himself, explain what is the particular style that is handsy, affectionate Joe and how should we think about it? Noreen, maybe we'll just start with the basics. Can you just describe the nature of the photographs that have emerged? Like what types of women, what are the kind of scenes that this happens in, and and what is his affectionate style? Well, to the last point, he calls it tactile, I believe. That's how he's described his his way of moving through the world. <laughs> Very military. Uh, yeah. um, so, so the photographs actually are not new. This has been a meme on the internet for a while that like, you know, I think it's like Uncle Joe, like like creepy Uncle Joe. Um, there was a video I remember from a few years ago. It was, I think, a swearing into the Senate. And he just sort of like hugged every single woman who came through and or gave him a, like a kiss. And that included like, you know, people's daughters, grandmothers. It was really just all kinds of women. Um and, you know, there are photos of him sort of putting his hand on people's shoulders. The yes, the the smelling the hair is a is a regular occurrence. Um in the in the Lucy Flores article, the photo accompanying it is from the event that um Flores was doing with Biden and also Eva Longoria. It's a photo of um, Flores, Biden, and Eva Longoria, and he, Biden has his hand kind of around the side of Eva Longoria, where he he's just like resting it, kind of like on her underwire. Um, it, it and like that's not even the woman who is accusing him is that of a being spot on a woman's body. <laughs> well, you underwire. know what I mean. It's yeah. like right on the side yeah. of the breast, like that's where it would uh-huh. hit. You know. Um, uh-huh. So it's this isn't a new thing. What's new about right now is that I think Lucy Flores is really the first woman to be like, no, this actually made me uncomfortable. Right. And here's why. And I thought she did a really smart job of articulating why. Right. Because you sort of like, uh, I mean, there have been it's not an unusual thing. Right. To have someone just like, you know, like give you a hug that feels like it's a little bit weird, but it's not, you know, harassment or assault. Mm -hmm, Certainly. mm -hmm. It's just like a little weird. Um, And what she really articulated was, okay, I was in this professional moment. He was there to represent me, to to support me as a candidate. And yet in that moment, he did something that he wouldn't have done to a male candidate. And it just took me out of that moment. It made me conscious of my body. It made me just like it unnerved me. Um, And I think the whole point of what she's trying to say is that, like, yeah, it's not it's she's not saying he's like Harvey Weinstein here. She Mm -hmm. says she's not accusing him of a crime. What she's saying is that it actually shows, you know, sort of a lack of empathy on his part. Like he just sees it as him expressing his love in the world. He doesn't think about what kind of, what that kind of transgression feels like for someone on the other end. It probably like is more to him. It's like he does it five times a day to her. She doesn't feel great about it and she spends time mulling it. So I think what she was trying to do is just explain why, um, 
why it bothers women. Not in, you know, again, like not in an earth shattering, like my life is ruined kind of way, just in a kind of everyday sexism. Um, this reveals something about his character kind of way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I've been through sexual harassment training and there's, you know, there's always they present these scenarios and there's like red zone, yellow zone, green zone. You know, there's some things are obviously no, you know, your ass looks great in that dress this morning, intern. Like then some (laughs) things are just completely fine, like a handshake, you know, and then there's these gray zones. And obviously this falls into the gray zone. And then there are these long discussions that ensue whenever you're in the yellow flag scenarios, which is, it depends. It's all depends on context, you know? And so we have, for example, heard from certain women like Jean Carnahan, who Mm -hmm. was a U.S. senator with him, who said that uh, her, her, uh, her husband and son had also had died in a plane crash and Joe Biden had had similar experiences, didn't know him and came and looked her in the eye and took both her hands. You know, he did that very physical thing that he did and really, really connected with her and how grateful she was. So it depends, right? The problem with Joe Biden as he's walking around this earth is that he can't possibly know who these people are. And so it is by its very nature kind of inappropriate and likely to make certain people uncomfortable and is a form of entitlement. Because in an office place, you the it depends means you know the relationships between the people. And you kind of know, like, like can I give a hug to my friend Elise? Yeah, because we've known each other for 20 years and, you know, we're friends. So I can always give her a hug, but I can't give a hug to somebody I haven't met. Like, you have to have a little kind of emotional intelligence, but when you're mm-hmm. walking around the world as a candidate, you know, you don't know anybody from anybody, you know? Yeah, there's a sense in which this is, there's a kind of a paternalism about it that he's, you know, and I know this makes certain people freak out, but like he, there's a lack of consent. He's not asking for consent. He's not saying, do you mind if I hug you? You know, may I do this? Which, you know, I I can already hear some people saying, come on, he's just wants to. And like, I get it. I I believe in his heart. He's just being affectionate. He's trying to make a connection. Um, He's a big old soppy, you know, figure. But it is, in fact. Or he's physical and sexual. I don't even think it's like he's clearly a guy who expresses himself physically all the time. And it's like the kisses are kind of like, I'm kissing you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 He's like he's he's bestowing, uh, you know, a favor in some way. So in, in a in a in a basic way, I don't necessarily find the specifics of what he does wrong but it is wrong because it is unbidden and it's wrong because it does make people feel uncomfortable he's i i believe in his heart he's he's trying to do it to to make people feel good but in fact it doesn't make people good as lucy flores explains very nicely and it is it's just there's no there's no sense of consent there's no sense of this is okay yeah i sort of don't want to cut him as much slack as you guys want to right like he's not it's not like he's 25 and figuring no, out for not. the first time that this might make people uncomfortable yeah, like he, surely he has seen a few expressions go blank when this happens. Mm-hmm. Surely he there's been some emotional feedback that he could have picked up, but he didn't want to. I mean, that was what was sort of frustrating and frankly galling about the statement that his campaign yes. put yes. out, which effectively said, oh, he 
he, you know, he he meant, means nothing but but the good in this. And right. no one was ever saying that he didn't. It's just yeah. the idea that he didn't think it through. And also his campaign keeps being like, well, she, you know, he was never alone with her. Yeah, Basically saying this cool. couldn't have happened when she described a situation where they were in front of other people. I mean, I, their response has been weird in a bunch of ways. Yeah. And um, I should say, I think I'm trying to be like even handed. I know. Because I personally would never vote for Joe Biden unless he was the last person standing against Donald Trump because I will forever be offended and and just completely repulsed by his taking of Neil Kinnock's story um you know one in one of his earlier failed presidential bids he took a british politician's life story and used it as his own repeatedly and it was it was an impersonation, and I, I, I and since Neil Kinnock's story is actually quite like mine, I feel very personally offended by. It. I like I say, I, I, I do not think I think he's too old for the job. I just don't. I think there's you know he's not somebody I would support. So I think I'm trying to go the extra yard to like be understanding of this. But yeah, it's it's. There was a really fantastic episode of the Five Thirty Eight Politics podcast starring uh, Claire Malone, sister of Noreen. Uh, this week that was I thought was very good on it was like a very even handed but really clear eyed assessment of where Joe Biden is and like you know for me just don't bother running again you know yeah Rebecca Traster did a piece yeah. where she sort of looked at the Lucy Flores thing and and uh, connected it back to his whole electoral career and or his whole legislative career yeah. right he has and the, and the reason that he is now being talked about as a viable candidate for president despite the fact that he's 76 years old and has twice um, run and not won um, is that everyone thinks that he can appeal to the mythical Trump voter and she sort of breaks down the way that for the past 30 years he's sort of done that thing where he has you know consistently voted against reproductive rights um, you know partly because of his Catholic conscience but also in a very uh, paternalistic way exactly. where he just sort of says I don't think women should have full control of their bodies and he has you know uh, like really acted shamefully in the Anita Hill thing uh, elect, you know appointing Clarence Thomas had all kinds of meaningful um, uh, meaningful consequences. He was sort of on the wrong side of busing and school integration, just step by step showing all the ways that like, okay, he is primed to appeal to what Rebecca calls that guy, you know, this mythical Ohio voter that everyone is trying to just um, bend, bend, you know, politics to because that's the guy who went for Trump. And that they're like things like him just being a little handsy kind of makes them feel like, oh, if I'm if my way of dealing with women or people of color is a little bit out of date, that's fine, because Joe Biden, um, you know, is accepted at the highest levels of uh, liberal politics. And he does things the way that I do mm -hmm. things. You know, I'm not so out of date that, you know, the people who are screaming about identity politics are the are the wrong ones. Right. Um, and I thought I, th I, th I think that's a piece worth reading if you're at all interested in this. And she sort of connects his, um, you know, his just lack of empathy for other people to the way that he behaves just on a micro interpersonal level. His, his also his statement on the Anita Hill hearing Ugh. was so strange, mm -hmm. you know, like it ended with him saying, I wish I could have done something, <laughs> yeah. you know, here's some things you could have done, <laughs> Joe. Well, and he's done the same thing with he's uh, like, well, but so he did the same like thing with the committee. I mean, I'm just it's just like one thing to say, like, I wish I had done something right. or I now wish I could do something to make up for it. But yeah. the tense, I wish I could have done something is so tone deaf. You could have done something, you know. Yeah, and I believe on the crime bill 
something something like that. He he did a very similar non-apology where he was sort of like mistakes were made, not by me, of course, but mistakes were made in that bill. And it was like he was super significant in the in that. I love the anecdote in I think it was in Rebecca Traster's piece, but um because he's, you know, Anita Hill is still waiting for her apology. And every time the um, the doorbell rings, uh, you know, she says, hey, maybe it's Joe Biden come to apologize. <laughs> so good. Were you guys were you guys expecting, though, like I have actually been surprised by the lack of blowback against Flores. Like to me, the closest analog to this was the Al Franken thing where um, Al Franken resigned from the Senate after he you know, was accused of groping by several women. Um, those were sort of more significant violations. And yet people were angry that like you know, he'd been forced out of office. And and I maybe it's there, but I haven't seen as much blowback um against the the people accusing um Biden, which is not just Lucy Flores at this point, um uh as there was against the, the Franken resignation. I think a lot from the things that I heard, the the sort of the feeling bad about what happened to Franken was more from people who live in Minnesota who said, you know, this was for us to decide. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that Joe Biden is currently in a sort of you know, rested, invested kind of position. He's, you know, just waiting to to go circle Iowa and eat some whatever people eat at state fairs. Corn dogs. There, corn dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's, you know, there's there's no actual thing that, there's no physical consequence that could come from these revelations, perhaps it maybe is a difference. Mm-hmm. I also think that it has, the conversation has unfolded quite fairly. Mm-hmm. In other words, you know, he's not being accused of sexual harassment. People are using the correct terms. People like as Me Too goes on, people are able to debate inside the gray zone. So there actually has been debate on Twitter with some people saying like contextually, like this was a good thing. There were times when I really liked this, but mostly it's a case of entitlement. And maybe it just means that the era of this this era is over like i feel like the debate has been real don't mm-hmm. you feel like yeah. it hasn't been just like like this is harassment kick it it hasn't been shrill it's been like a like a very reasonable debate about entitlement and you know an era is gone and seeing things from the woman's perspective lucy flores did not accuse him of anything beyond what he actually did mm-hmm. you know she just mm-hmm. said like in the moment this made me really uncomfortable. She described her like her mental state in the moment. And then she sort of articulated why it's not cool from her perspective and how she felt. And that's it. It like it was like a it was appropriate, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, yeah. There was a bit, um, I think there might have been actual nuance <laughs> deployed here. Yeah. Now, have you, Hannah, as as our resident inside the Beltway person, have you heard anything contrary to what we're saying? Has there been like the opposite case made? to you like uh you mean pro joe biden pro joe biden like people are making too big of a deal out of it not exactly that although i have heard of more cases like more nuanced cases where it was appreciated you know Mm -hmm. like and i I think those have been part of the public debate too like for example one of my uh one of my producers uh at invisibilia i almost asked her to come down but she was a professor at morgan state which is a hbcu and she um she said that joe biden came to their graduation and she and i were going through the instagrams of and he he basically kissed Every black woman. And I wish I could play these videos for you of like the shrieking. And she said it was like electrifying and there was just like a lot of squealing. Hmm. And she was talking to me about that. And it's like it's like these weird different views on like 
what that kind of like the, the context, basically, mm-hmm. like in the context of graduation and sort of who he was like. And, and for all I know, like half the women who were kissed on the stage were like, it'll get away from me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but it's just been this interesting like like it's not a secret. It's not even a like like a like a like a secret at the surface. It's just like what he does walking mm-hmm. around the earth, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess it's just the million ways that a kiss can land. That was a good radio, The Million Ways That a Kiss Can Land. Yeah. That's a good outro. You must yeah. do this for a living. <laughs> oh, boy. So do, so is the so is is our takeaway from this that, I mean, Donald Trump is the president, but like that this that this <clears throat> that this era of entitlement is just like people just it will be immediately called out, you know, like. This is not a style that anyone Well, can not immediately, right? Yeah. We know it's not have. immediately, but it does it feels very positive to me. Uh just partly because of the the way that the response has played out that it hasn't, you know, led to a ridiculous over-response or freakouts. Um it's, it has been very you know, that yeah, that in this field where that is pretty diverse, uh, we don't have to settle for someone who um, doesn't seem to understand personal consent. But I'm I'm sort of more interested in what happens downstream from that, right? Like, do America's other handsy Joes stop doing that? Like, probably not in the near term, um, right? Like... It just. I mean, anybody who works at a corporation is is ha- is going through sexual harassment training, yeah, and, and isn't is being told in a million different ways like these behaviors are inappropriate. Like you can't touch someone in the workplace, you can't kiss them. HR. I, I feel like so many workplaces are on alert. Let's not to say small businesses or all other kinds of places where people work <clears> or that this is a perfect system, but I feel like it has penetrated the culture that like there are just certain kinds of behavior in the public sphere. You know, and campaigning is is. A a professional atmosphere are considered unacceptable. But like what happens? So, the, I mean, yes, there's a professional atmosphere, but they, Lucy Flores and Joe Biden didn't, you know, report to the same person in HR, right? Like, and what mm-hmm. happens when this happens just at a social event? You're at like a Christmas party and like some distant family friend like gives you a weird hug. Not a big deal, but also like kind of makes you uncomfortable. Like, does that dynamic change at all? Probably not. That's what I think. But that's a little depressing. It's also like that there's an open discussion now. Like there's mm -hmm. something to point to. It's like there's something to roll your eyes to and say, like, remember what happened to Joe Biden? But also some way in which there's a cultural understanding that this behavior is out of date. Yes. But also in that moment, you don't want to be like, excuse me, sir. I point you to the example of Joe Biden. Please see the op-ed in the cut dated. You know, you just sort of like there are ways that like you want to just smooth things over with social niceties. And for something like this that doesn't probably rise to the level of something that alters people's lives in a super negative way, most people will just let it roll and go on, which is what Lucy Flores did. And I sort of just think that that's going to keep happening. Sorry to be a downer. Hmm. <laughs> that know. is very pessimistic. Listeners, maybe you can help us come up with tactics. We actually workshopped this in one of the sexual harassment trainings that I <laughs> yeah. went to, which is like, so what are you supposed to do? You know, you see the situation. Like, what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to say that's not cool? Or are you supposed to, you know, like, why don't you just keep, like, every, every woman on their phone the way we used to keep Mace? We can keep, like, the Joe Biden image scroll. <laughs> just, like, 
as the person's <laughs> kissing us, we can hold up our phones and scroll through the gross pictures with the headlines. You know, I don't know. There's got to be some way to uh, some appropriate way to behave when someone does something which doesn't like obviously floridly cross line, but is in Lucy Flores territory. What are you supposed to do? Listeners, we rely on you for tips. Email us at thewavesatslate.com. Tell us if you've ever been in this situation, have you found an elegant or even inelegant solution or way to react in the moment? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Maybe you should talk to someone. The new book out this week by Lori Gottlieb. Lori's a working therapist and a writer, and her new book is about the years she went through her own life crisis, went into therapy, and maybe developed a deeper, more intimate understanding of what therapy does to a person. Uh, And I will say truly a lot of the pleasure of this book is the tell-all about therapy, an inside view of what's actually going on in the therapist's mind. We have Lori with us today. Hi, Lori. Hi there. Hi. Um, (laughs) Did I do an okay job? Do you think people get really self-conscious around therapists? We're like, did I say that right? Are you you reading everything that I'm saying as I'm talking? Like, is that a thing that (laughs) therapists actually are just like plagued by in normal conversations with people? I don't know. I think you just did, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think sometimes, you know, it's that kind of thing where if you're at a dinner party or a barbecue and people say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a therapist. And they have some kind of weird reaction, like they either really want to talk to you and tell you lots of things and get your advice, or they very much don't want to talk to you because they think you kind of have <laughs> x-ray vision into their soul and you're going to psychoanalyze them. Right. It's like um, talk, right. It's like writing an email to an English teacher or, or a copy editor. <laughs> right. like you just, it just puts you on edge, you know? Spell check. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, so uh, we have to lay out the basics just so people understand the starting point of this book. So in my mind, it starts at a moment when you're blindsided. Can you just say how you were blindsided? You do such a good visual job of laying it out as a scene in the book, which I hope will be repeated in a movie one day because it's just very visual. Um, but it's a great scene. Oh, thank great you. Great and terrible. Um, so uh, the boyfriend that I was planning to get married to uh, decided that he didn't want to live with a kid under his roof for the next 10 years. And that kid was my eight-year-old at the time. And this was quite a shock to me because he had never mentioned that before. Oof. That now everybody's good. quiet. <laughs> They're all observing. Only the because news. you did that so you did that so like that was a practice therapist way of describing a very painful incident, which you've clearly worked through in a good way. Um uh uh the thing that the thing that it, that is interesting to me and in how the book kind of sets off on its trajectory, because it's both about your life as a therapist and about your own time in therapy, is that how is it that you went into therapy? Like, as if knowing nothing about therapy. Like, you describe this funny dynamic where you go in there expecting the therapist to be like, yeah, you go, girl. He's a dick. You know, just to <laughs> act exactly like your friends, even though you are a therapist and you know that that's not the job of a therapist. So what do you think that weird sort of 
disconnect was, where you went into therapy with a certain set of expectations that as a therapist you know are not really true? Well, when I went to therapy, a friend of mine who is a therapist said, you need to go somewhere where you're not being a therapist. And I think that when I went in there, I very much went in there thinking I knew a lot more than I did because I am a therapist, but also I'm human and I went in as a patient. And I think that, um, you know, I felt like the situation was so clear cut that, you know, clearly I'm right, he's wrong. And the therapist is, you know, any any sort of normal functioning human being is going to see that. Um, but of course, that's not what happens. I was so interested in the process of picking your therapist. So first of all, it was extra complicated for you because you are in the industry and you had all kinds of reasons why you didn't necessarily want colleagues to know that you were seeking out therapy. But also, you know, you had a specific kind of therapist you wanted. You wanted a married male therapist. And I started to wonder, what does it say about a person, like the kind of therapist they choose? Do you think about when someone walks into your office or are you like, well, they picked me. So they, you know, must have this set of things that they are looking for in a therapist, and that means X, Y, and Z about the person. Right. Sometimes the person will actually tell you that in the first session, mm-hmm. or the first phone call when they call to make the appointment. They'll say, I found you because of whatever reason. Um, and then you feel like, oh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to live up to that set of expectations because that whatever they read about me online may not be how I practice as a therapist or may not be their experience in the room with me as a therapist. Um, but I do think it's helpful that people have specific ideas about maybe what kind of person they would feel comfortable talking to. Mm-hmm. And for you, why did you want a married man? Well, in my situation, I just wanted somebody to validate my position that, um, you know, what my boyfriend had done was was sociopathic. And so um, I thought that if I found someone just like him, I thought if I went to a female therapist, that she would be too sympathetic to me and automatically agree with me. And I thought that if I can even get a guy to say this, <laughs> this is this is really bad behavior, um, that I know that I'm in the right Laura, one of the things that's really striking in your book is that you're a really great writer. I mean, you talk a lot about your sort of job history, your career history, you know, working in television, going to medical school. Um, But through it all, there's also this strand of like, and also I'm a writer and I've written books and I've been doing journalism this whole time. And clearly, you're good at it. But I, I was really struck that there are so many rules around therapy, rules and like not only about like licensure type stuff, but like guidances of what you can and can't do, how you can talk to people or not talk to people. Aren't there rules about um, writing about your therapeutic practice? And I know that you talk in the book or there's a disclaimer or whatever we want to call it about how you treated um, your patients. Can you talk about that and that kind of the process of kind of writing about something that's a very private thing? That's such a great question. Um, I follow four main patients in the book, and then I'm the fifth. (laughs) Um, And then there are other patients woven throughout the narrative. And uh, all of the people that I write about are people that I no longer see because I didn't think that I could write about people as I was seeing them. It would be impossible for me not to um, compartmentalize those two things, and I thought that it would be harmful to the work that we were doing. So... um, 
that's one of the criterion that I used. Another was I wanted to pick people who were very different from each other. Um, so we've got different genders, different ages, different histories, all of that. And I also picked people that I knew. Uh, first, I got permission, I should say. Um, but I also picked people that um, that I knew would be um, would be okay with it. Um, most people who come to see me know that I was a writer before. So it's not a big surprise to them that I would be writing. They've seen how I've handled writing about the therapy room and other contexts. Um, but there were certainly people that I thought would also be really good to include in the narrative that I didn't even ask because I felt like what I would be writing might be hurtful to them in some way. Mm-hmm. It always surprises me that there's such a kind of veil of mystery around therapy and the therapist's work, which is one of the reasons I love your approach to your field, you know, and I'm very glad that there's a really good writer who's also a therapist because because I feel like it shouldn't be there because it's actually enlightening to learn about the things that we're all wondering about. For example, can you, can you talk about your description of why the therapist gets bored, which is like everybody's fear, like, and it creates so much weirdness in therapy because you're like, do I have to be more interesting? Do I have to be more entertaining? Like, does my therapist like me? Like, but you actually clarified that for me in a way which was beautiful. So can you talk about that? Like when you are bored as a therapist and how you get out of that? Yeah, Um that's such a great question because I think so many people worry about that. And therapy is not a cocktail party. I'm not <laughs> interested in being entertained. I'm not interested in banter or some fabulous story. Um, boring patients are the ones who keep you at bay. They're the ones who you can't really get in there and connect with them and see them. So they go off on tangent after tangent or they tell the same rambling story every time. And when you try to focus them, they, they won't go there. They run away from you. Um, so people who are almost like aggressively boring are the people who, um, you know, are just you can't you can't see them. And I think that the people most people are hiding something when they come to therapy, not necessarily consciously, um, but I think that they want to present the prettiest version of themselves. And I think that the people who really let you get in there with them and show you the truth of who they are are not boring at all, even if their their lives are unremarkable. It's not it's not as though they have to tell me something really interesting about their lives. It's that they're inherently interesting as a human being going through whatever struggle they're going through. And you, when you were a patient, worried about this too, though. Not Maybe not necessarily the boring thing, but you worried whether your therapist liked you, right? Why did you care so much about that? I think it's hard to have this very intense, intimate relationship with another person and not wonder what they think about you right. and how they feel about you. Um, when I would leave Wendell's office, the therapist that I saw, and I would see there was always this other woman there after in the waiting room if she came early. And I always, you know, I felt like she was my competition in some ways <laughs> that I always wondered, you know, is he looking forward to her session more? Mine was such a downer. <laughs> um, you know, I just cried through my session. She's probably a, a little easier. He might be hungry or bored with me. And I, I know better as a therapist, but I think you still have those instincts just as a, as a person connecting with this with this other human on this very intense level i was wondering after reading your book you know how many millions of americans are going into their therapist's offices this week and just like 
like like fired up to ask the question, do you like me? You know, <laughs> I, I, I set the precedent that you can ask that because I did that in the book. Um, Lloyd, do you think that there is such a thing as a feminist therapist or is therapy kind of outside or beyond politics or ideology? I don't think it's beyond politics or ideology. I think that we come in with our own set of values and our own set of um, ideas about the world. And, you know, I, I, I recommend books a lot in therapy and, and talk about books. And I had this patient who recommended this book that was so misogynistic yeah. and violent. <laughs> and, and I was like, and he seemed like such a feminist in every other way. And I was so surprised. And I had a reaction to that. So I think that... Um, I don't practice necessarily in a way that one might call ideological, um, but my values are infused in how I practice. Um, so I think that when I talked to him about why he liked this book, I was very much coming at it from somebody who found it quite offensive. Huh. You know, one takeaway I took from your experience is like how powerful are the stories that we tell ourselves, you know, and how much we what kind of cling to them. And I just wondered if what what it was like for you, your experience of yielding from the story that was so important to you about your boyfriend. Like, was was it painful to let go of that story? Sort of did it change you in some way to get a different perspective? Because it's it was, you know, the book starts out and it's actually it's actually critically important for you to believe that he's an asshole. Like it, it's it's very important um, to protect you, to protect your child, and so it, it's a little risky to let go of that story and just how that happens. That's right. We all come in with a story that's told only through our lens, only through our perspective. And so when people come into the therapy room, I'm listening not just to the story, but to how flexible they are with the story. Am I going to have room to have them consider another point of view or how long must I wait to do that before um, so that they won't feel judged or criticized or misunderstood? And that happens to me when I first go to Wendell. You know, my story is uh, very much a singular story and immediately maybe because I'm a therapist and I think Wendell misjudged my readiness <laughs> um, but you know his first thing was I think you're grieving something bigger than the loss of the boyfriend and he confronts me about you know and I, I'm making the case for why why my boyfriend was so you know quote unquote avoidant as one of my therapist friends said and and Wendell makes the case that all this avoidance you're telling me about is showing me that you knew about his avoidance the whole time so therefore you were avoidant too and I don't like that version of the story that he's kind of reflecting back to me but it was a crucial part of the story and so I think my writing background comes in very handy as a therapist because I feel like I'm an editor sitting in the therapist chair sometimes I'm really helping people to reshape the narrative that they came in with and look at what might be the other characters' perspectives in the stories that you're telling me, and is there a way to rewrite this from a different point of view, and who are the minor characters, and who are the major characters, and do they need some rejiggering? Um, and I think when people come to therapy, they leave usually with a much different version of the story that they came in with, and that's very liberating. When you're talking about therapy now, it seems so important and like something that we should all be doing, uh, maybe not necessarily, not necessarily all the time, but um, 
you know, you the, that that thing that you just said, like, man, I want that. Um, but therapy <laughs> is so expensive, and and it can be hard to find a therapist who's covered on your insurance for more than a few visits, if at all. And like, this is kind of making me think that should we be pushing for access to therapy for all? Are there other ways that we could get this experience um, in a way that more people could actually get it all the time or when they need it? Well, the therapists have been pushing for more access for a very long time (laughs) because um, there are so many people who would benefit from therapy and who really, there are some people who need it and there are some people who would benefit in ways that are maybe less um, crucial, but but important. Um, and access is is very difficult, I think, for a lot of people. Um, but I think people can also, one of the things that happens in the therapy room that we try to encourage outside of it is connecting with other people. That you don't want other people to be your therapist, but I think what I hear is there's so much loneliness out there. And even with people who seem like they have very full lives and they have lots of people in their lives, um, I think people are not sitting face-to-face in a room with another person without a distraction, without something pinging or vibrating or some screen on the wall in a restaurant. Um, And I think that our mental health is suffering because of it. Mm. Um, well, Lori, the book is fantastic. It is interesting in so many different ways. It's um, it's just a pleasure to read, and I'm grateful that you lift the veil on therapy for all of us. It's just fun and, I think, a service to the world. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. And it's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb, and it's out this week. Now let's move on to our third topic, which is Pete Buttigieg. We're going to do something a little unusual here. We're going to turn over our show to a conversation between the other Waves host, Christina Cotterici, who recently wrote an article about Pete Buttigieg. Uh, She got some blowback, and so she's going to have a conversation with Mark Harris about Pete Buttigieg and what role gayness plays in his campaign. Take it away. Okay, so, well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge I've received a lot of DMs and emails uh, in response to my piece, which was trying to pick apart or apply an intersectional lens to Pete Buttigieg's gay identity and how he talks about his identity. Um, A lot of the responses that I've gotten have been people who were legitimately hurt by the piece that I wrote, who said um, my piece resurfaced the shame that they felt while growing up gay or living in the closet. Um, And so I do want to apologize for that hurt that I caused. Before I wrote this piece about Pete Buttigieg and his gay identity, um, you were involved in kind of a broad Twitter conversation about him and his qualifications and the fact that uh, he was beating everyone but Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders in this recent Iowa poll, a very small poll, but a poll nonetheless. Um, So tell me a little bit about the discourse you were seeing and what prompted you to comment on Buttigieg. Well, I think what interested me was that some of what I was seeing on social media was uh, a pushback from uh, Elizabeth Warren supporters um, saying, basically, it's a reflection of media bias that Pete Buttigieg is getting all of the attention that Elizabeth Warren should be getting when... um, his proposals are just either pale versions of her proposals or uh, good versions of her proposals, but late. Mm. Um, and it, it 
it seemed to me that he was being used as a kind of uh, avatar for media inequity. Like this is this is a typical imbalance where uh, a white guy comes in, says the same things as a more qualified woman and uh, gets all the attention and kind of sucks all the air out of the room. And it seemed to me that, first of all, that was not really an accurate statement of what was going on with Pete Buttigieg. And second, that he in particular is a really bad example uh, if you want to make that point, which I do not think is an illegitimate point to make, um, but he's just the wrong guy to make it with. So that's that's the conversation that, that I ended up getting involved in. Yeah, and I appreciated this one tweet that I saw of yours and was actually a little bit of the inspiration for the piece that I went on to write where you said gay people in America are never given a free ride. Um, so I interpreted that tweet as saying, you know, you can't write him off as just another white male candidate because he's not. He's different from all of the white male presidential candidates who've come before in that he's openly gay. Is that a fair characterization of your tweet? Absolutely. Um, yes. And and I, I do think there's this... Um, there is this tendency uh, among not not among progressives but among a certain set of progressives to sort of feel that about lgbt issues like we we did that um yeah. or or maybe not about trans issues but certainly about um gay and lesbian issues it, it's sort of like no we we solved that and everybody's equal now so uh we don't have to factor that in when we talk about candidates and you know i certainly don't know any actual gay people who feel that way so it can be a little jarring to 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 hear this historic nature of a gay candidacy and of a gay candidate dismissed um by by other progressives including me possibly <laughs> is that right <laughs> <laughs> well i i mean i think you were i think you were raising the question and and i mean it connects to a whole set of larger questions i mean yeah i think i think where i pushed back was the sort of um you know is he is he just another white guy or do, does is being gay sufficiently unusual to <laughs> nullify the same old same old aspect of the rest of him right um i think that connects to a, a bunch of larger questions about how we view this extremely large and still growing democratic field because you know when you look at it in the aggregate the the field of democratic candidates is men it's women it's african americans it's white people it's a, a latino it's uh someone of mixed heritage it's straight it's gay it's jewish it's christian it's coastal it's midwestern um so like all together it's pretty great like mm -hmm. like it, it it covers the bases that you would want a progressive inclusive party to cover but the fact is um one person is going to get picked and if we view that eventual choice only through the prism of the idea that certain demographics are going to get shafted we're probably going to be in trouble no matter who gets picked yes i completely agree with that um and at the same time i think it's worth questioning how 
different identities and perceptions of identities affect the all of the conversation that happens before the election, um, I I think it's important to explore how his different identities and and all of the intersecting identities of all the candidates affect their lives and their own conception of their lives because you know someone isn't just their marginalized identity they're all of the other things that affect their lives and um, Pete Buttigieg in particular, I think it's interesting to look at how he's framed his gay identity in his political career. Um, you know, he only came out midway through his political career. He was already mayor of South Bend. So we actually have a right. lot of information on how he sees his sexuality and how he explains it to others, how it affects his political worldview. Um, so, you know, between the the discourse that you were participating in and that I was sort of witnessing on Twitter and in conversations with colleagues about um, how how identity was playing into the the Buttigieg and Warren. Um, I, I kind of don't know why those two candidates were pitted against each other, but um, there were also conversations that I was having among friends about how some of us, not all of us, but some were feeling a little bit less than excited about him as this possible gay trailblazer in part because he's tried to distance himself a bit from gay culture and from uh, from queerness as anything but this kind of unimportant distinction in who he happens to love. Well, I'm, I mean, you're opening so many interesting doors here. It's, it's, I, I think I would argue a little bit with the idea that he has, uh, distanced himself from it. I mean, I, I, I don't think you become, you know, uh, an openly, uh, you know, an out gay mayor of a, uh, an Indiana city population 100,000 without, you know, I mean, he, I, I think he's owned it in a pretty large way. But you're absolutely right that we can't look at a candidate simply as a distillation of one particular identity or another, or even as an intersection of identities. Um, on the other hand, I think we also can't look at candidates as much as some people would like them to as just kind of um, fleshly embodiments of uh, positions on issues. Um, you know, and I think this was where the this this was where I sort of got my back up a little bit about the um sort of insistence on comparing Buttigieg and Warren because it, it, it's it's you know Pete Buttigieg is a gay midwestern veteran mayor of a city that's not elizabeth warren's background and all of that is part of who he is and you know the, the fact is people don't vote just by sort of closing their eyes, getting the pictures of who the candidates are out of their heads and saying, okay, but what are their positions? It's, it's about this weird intersection of positions and um, biography and mm -hmm. demeanor and experience and age. And, you know, and the fact is that with a lot of those uh, X factor issues, probably most of all the issue of quote unquote relatability, um, there's a huge amount to interrogate about the difference between the way men and women are treated. Mm -hmm. Like that's where I think the criticism is legitimate. I, I just think it was, it was interesting and to me somewhat disturbing that this wasn't a discussion of Warren versus Inslee or Warren versus Hickenlooper um, or Warren versus Biden. It was, it was the one gay candidate uh, in 
in the race, and it felt like uh, kind of the not necessarily the right place to aim one's wrath about this particular issue, I guess. Hmm. One of the things that I was trying to do in this piece that I wrote and and it relates to the questions that you've just raised is, you know, what do voters, especially voters in the Democratic primary, because that's the election that's being prepared for right now, um, what do they mean when they say they want representation or diversity, you know, beyond the sort of aesthetics or the feel-good factor? Like, what do we actually value in diversity and in the candidacies of people from demographics that have been underrepresented in politics? Like, why is it important? Why is it so important that we have you know, not just a female candidate for president, but multiple women running for president right now. I mean, it's 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 amazing to see the Democratic slate right now. It's incredible. It feels like a Band-Aid has been ripped off, a glass ceiling Band-Aid has been ripped off, or maybe it's just like this diverse pipeline is finally starting to mature. Whatever it is, it's amazing. But I was trying to think about what does it actually mean? Like, what do we value in a candidate who comes from a background that's underrepresented? And it's really all about perspective and how how does how does that identity, if they want to identify with that aspect of their identity, affect their perspective? So the thing I was trying to think about is like, how have Pete Buttigieg's identities informed his perspective? And, you know, when he's said things like most recently talking about Chick-fil-A, and he said, you know, the boycott of Chick-fil-A is really a lot of virtue signaling, or, you know, maybe it's like a worthy cause, but there's a lot of virtue signaling involved there among progressives. To me, that says, you know, I think he's actively trying to play down the way his gay identity might be affecting his politics, because it's actually an economic boycott is the opposite of virtue signaling. It's taking a virtuous action uh, and and trying to prevent money from being funneled into the hands of people who would want to continue to subjugate queer people. Right. I agree with you about that. And and um, I think one thing that's going on, it, I mean, first of all, we're going to learn a lot more uh, about him. You know, what we know about Pete Buttigieg, other yes. than the sort of fun, like, oh, his father was Maltese and he speaks Norwegian and, <laughs> you know, he was in the army. Like, we're just at the tip of what we're eventually going to learn. Um, I, I, so I don't agree with him about Chick-fil-A or, or virtue signaling. Um, but... I'm also conscious of, like, I remember the the sort of Obama isn't black enough mm. pushback in his first campaign. And it seems to me absolutely inevitable that the, the first really viable um, gay candidate is going to be um, mild, moderate, almost aggressively reasonable about gay issues i oh, reasonable for straight people not reasonable for gay people <laughs> right exactly Th- that said i absolutely do not doubt that uh he would be a fantastic president on lgbt issues um which is something by the way that i feel about most of the uh candidates in the democratic field mm-hmm. um so it, it's not that he would be unique in that regard um I'm just saying, you know, I think that he's trying to reach out to a lot of people. And so he's he's going to disappoint some people who want him to be sort of absolutely 
where activists are on some of these issues. Now, I mean, if he were to say, for instance, um, I think it's fine that uh, religious people shouldn't have to bake wedding cakes for gay people, then I would have a real sort of policy problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't. But I would be surprised if he said that. I don't think that's who he is or where he is. I mean, in one of these interviews that that uh, he's done in the last few weeks. He used the word gaydar. He was asked if he thought um, James Buchanan was actually the first gay president. Oh my God. And I have to admit, I just, like, I, I, I reeled for a second at the idea that there is someone who is, you know, doing fantastically in fundraising um, and is polling now at 4% nationally in one poll who can actually be free to say a sentence like, my gaydar isn't actually that good. It's like, <laughs> I, I I do not discount the kind of historic nature of this candidacy, nor do I think that, you know, that gives him a free pass. But as as I said on Twitter, no no gay candidates get a free pass no no gay people in america get a free pass for stuff like this yeah um and to his credit he has talked about that quite a bit you know he whenever somebody asks him about what it's like to be the first gay candidate um or the first openly gay candidate in a major party actually he hasn't announced his candidacy yet has he he's still in the exploratory it's still still exploratory i guess he's the Um, first openly gay exploratory committed (laughs) person in a major party still historic um i'm i'm all for having a gay explorer (laughs) that that seems good to me um you know you got at something i wanted to go back to this really important question you asked which was why other than the great optics do we value diversity in a candidate and i would just say like the most optimistic version of that would be that if somebody belongs to any demographic category that is historically ignored or demonized or underrepresented or brushed off that um they would take that experience not just to advocate for uh their own category um but uh, for for all of the categories of people who have been in that position, I mean, I, I as much as I like Pete Buttigieg, I think that that kind of the the optimism and hope with which we would invest a diverse candidate could apply to a lot of the people in this race. Um, I think one thing that the sort of anger about him uh, from this handful of Warren supporters did not acknowledge was this is the first thing in the democratic race so far that has been a genuine surprise. Hmm. Like we've had a lot of announcements we've had, we have, you know, Bernie and Biden in the front of the pack, which is, I think where pretty much everybody thought those two guys would be. But Pete is the first candidate that has sort of gotten noticed in a way that's out of proportion with what people expected and right. that in itself is exciting you know that this race could use a lot more positive surprises like that yeah and and it's also out of proportion the attention he's got has been out of proportion with his name recognition in general i mean most of the other uh, candidates in the race have had years of national press to accompany them and to get people sort of used to their candidacies, and he hasn't. And so I think that probably plays into some of the excitement, too. And he's a very interesting person um, and a very good politician. Um, so one question I wanted to ask uh, is about 
a nerve that I think my piece hit or touched on um, that characterized a lot of the feedback that I've been getting, a lot of the negative feedback, um, which is about gender presentation and how that affects the homophobia that all queer people experience in one way or another. And in queer women's communities, at least the ones that I'm a part of, it's a pretty common conversation or one that we have a fair amount, which is, you know, the different privileges or stereotypes that attend femme presentation or butch presentation or non-binary presentation, you know, the way that society has a strong preference for masculine characteristics, but also a distaste for gender nonconformity. These are all different lenses that inform the way people experience the world and are perceived by the world. And I tried to make an argument about that in relation to Pete Buttigieg in that, you know, because he's a masculine gay man who was not out maybe not out to himself, but definitely not out to the world until 2015, uh, his experiences in life might have been um, more akin to that of a straight man than, you know, some of the women in the race, let's say. Um, and and a lot of people took issue with that. Can you, you know, not asking you to speak for all gay men, but I, I would love to hear from you, you know, wh- why you think that in particular has been hurtful to people. You know, this issue of gay self-presentation vis-a-vis masculine self-presentation um, is so fraught for gay men. I mean, so many of us grew up um, learning to pass, you mm-hmm. know, uh, l- learning to conceal any kind of uh, femi traits that we have, trying to deepen our voices, trying not to be sibilant, watching our wrists, watching our walk, all of that stuff. And so... Um, it's it's hard to hear that framed as uh, the idea that straight-acting gay men are the recipients of privilege that is not afforded to um, femier guys or gender nonconforming guys. Because, like, while that's true, for many people, it was... Uh, that that presentation was developed as a survival strategy. Hmm. I mean, you you needed to look a certain way and act a certain way and be a certain way to get through your adolescence, to get through high school and and often beyond high school. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's not naturally who you are, or that some guys, including perhaps uh, Pete Buttigieg don't come to it completely naturally. Uh, it's not a privilege strategy. It's a, It was a survival strategy for a lot of people. That said, it's funny to hear um, Pete uh, described as some sort of representation of alpha male homosexuality because uh, in his demeanor, like, I don't get that from him at all. But I think uh, judging or ranking gay men or lesbians or or any gender nonconforming person by how they come off, what their demeanor is, their walk, the timbre of their voice, their manner, how uh, legibly gay they are or nonconforming they are, it's something we should all probably stay away from. Yeah, and I I definitely never intended and and would never uh, try to sort of rank people on how 
you know, how gay they are based on their characteristics. I definitely won't ever say that anyone who identifies as gay is more or less gay than another person who identifies right. as gay. Right. Oh, and I didn't but, take that from your piece yeah. at all, by the way. Uh, thank you. A lot of people did. <laughs> um, but uh, which, you know, ever. The, the author is dead. I'm fine with people interpret, interpreting my piece however um, <laughs> they'd like to. Um, but I think one difficulty that I'm now facing as I continue to try to write about this stuff is how to, um, you know, it's a topic that is infinitely interesting to me to pull apart how public perception and self-perception um, plays into a political candidate's campaign and, and, and uh, narrative, self-narrative. Um, and, you know, I think gender presentation is a big part of that. I, I don't doubt that a- any political candidate, gay or not, has thought about their gender presentation. You know, I, I want to find a way to talk about this in a way that doesn't make it seem like I'm playing the so-called oppression Olympics or saying that, you know, one person has been uniformly privileged while another person has been uniformly disprivileged. I think for anyone who isn't a straight white man, self-presentation becomes absolutely an issue that they think about. I, I, I think, um, I think that's that's true for all the candidates um, who who aren't straight white men. In that, you know, am I too angry? Am mm-hmm. I too shrill? Um, am I uh, am I going to get criticized for you know h- how I eat or the way I look or what if I point too much or if I raise my voice? Um, that that I mean, we're looking at a field now where. Uh, you know, probably at least half the candidates, um, maybe more, are are not so-called traditional candidates, and and so um, I think it's going to be really incumbent on any of us who write about them um, to try to check our own biases. I mean, I'm sure that I um, I'm sure that there are ways in which my thinking defaults to straight white male candidates and and politicians just because that's what i grew up with and and you know i'm gay so so i think it's not going to be easy for a lot of people but yes as what you called the oppression olympics would be the worst possible road for any of us to take i mean the idea that like any kind of fight that like well no gay people have had it worse than women or like that would be just an utterly pointless road for us to go down yeah agree um well thank you so much mark for coming on it was really great to talk to you thanks so much for having me all right let's move on to recommendations june what do you have for us so there's this thing with Netflix that I'm sure I'm not the only person who has experienced this, where something comes out and you just kind of forget. And then uh, maybe months later, you realize, you know what? I never watched that. And I love that show. And that happened to me recently with the fourth and final season of The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which was fantastic. It was actually maybe the best season and in part because they're further and further away from the bunker, which is kind of an awkward like real thing that you can't really talk about a person who was imprisoned for however many years and and in the context of a comedy and kind of keep things light. And by the fourth season, we've kind of moved away from that. And it's just become something that sure is part of her personal history, um, but it doesn't kind of overwhelm the the comedy of the show and there's something so absurd and so delightful and so very, very New York about 
the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And all the acting is amazing. Even the bad acting is amazing. Um, and so I just really recommend that fourth and final season. Don't sleep on it, America. I love that show. Every time I order a glass of Pinot Noir, I think of that song. (laughs) I'm going to recommend a new podcast called The Double Shift by Catherine Goldstein. She has done America's best research on working mothers, and she interviews a bunch of people like a punk rocker, a woman who works in a brothel, a rabbi. She just interviews women in different situations, and what emerges from that is this total picture of this... um, this chronic problem where women slash mothers feel like they are failing, but in fact it is the system who is failing all of them. Like you get this sense of people in different situations struggling with individual problems and just this overwhelming sense that something is broken and needs to be fixed and therefore you should elect a female president. Um, But anyway, it's the double shift, Catherine Goldstein, (laughs) and it is just out. So you should have a listen. Noreen, what do you have? Uh, well, I was going to recommend Say Nothing, the wonderful Patrick Radden Keefe book, but both of my co-hosts have already recommended it. But I'm obsessed with it. I just want to let everyone know that, that if you were on the fence with just, both, just Hannah and June recommending it, please know that it has my <laughs> full endorsement, too. Um, and so I am going to recommend something really dumb and really great for the end of winter, which is a $10 lotion that uh, the website Into the Gloss says is a dupe for La Mer. Um, it is skin food from Waleda. It's like, I think it's organic. It definitely smells like it's organic. <laughs> uh, it is just, it comes in this green tube. I just think it's magical. You're supposed to put it on like really dry parts of your body, but I put it on my face. And um, I'm not a dermatologist, but <laughs> this has just been the best thing to happen to me culturally this winter. It's my newfound devotion to a $10 green tube of lotion called Skin Food. So, um, okay, can you take that back, please? Actually, just kidding. Um, <laughs> the... <laughs> At least it's cheap, so I forgive you. Oh, you oh, you think it's bad for feminists to recommend like no, not beauty at all. industry? I just like I'm just a little baffled. I mean, we've like talked about it, um, and I still don't have my head around. It's not the beauty industry. It's like the wellness, or it's like the way I feel like every young woman I know is just like completely bought in. They're just completely unironic about all these kind of organic wellness products that they absolutely need, and it's kind of fun. I get it. It's like totally fun, but it is there is we've talked about this. I don't need to hash yeah, this over. I'm I, just. I'm like, I don't have my head fully around why we are fully into that, like, Except, all well, the here's, things, like, all I, these organic things. I find the whole skincare regime obsession a little baffling, but you, you live in a place where your body gets itchy in winter. Like, any lotion that is going to put an end to that, I'm, I am, I'm uncategorically, uncomplicatedly big for. And it doesn't, to me, that's very separate from, you know, 27-step, skincare regimes with spreadsheets and 59 whatever they're even called i don't even know what they're called yeah this is just like all purpose get it done restore your skin's barrier of moisture but yes i take your larger point hannah i too think it is dumb and i too am complicit and totally wrapped up in it feminism in a nutshell Um, no it's not (laughs) dumb and that's totally affordable so i i third it 
Um, well, that's our show for today. Um, me uh, insulting Noreen about her uh, <laughs> her beauty products. That was totally unnecessary. Sorry, Noreen. Thanks to our producer, Danielle Hewitt. Uh, thanks as ever to our production assistant, Alex Barish. You can email us at thewaves at slate.com. We would love to hear from you or tweet at us at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, or at Hannah Rosen. For June and Noreen, I am Hannah Rosen, and The Waves will be back with you next week. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details